Where the hell have you been, soldier? Training, sir! Training, sir! What kind of training, son? Pizza training, sir! Welcome to episode 31 of Drew and Sam Talk Training. I am Drew Helmholtz with Better Than Yesterday Consulting. And I'm Sam with Bowser Consulting. In this episode, we have the pleasure to introduce you to Richard Sheraton, CEO, co-founder, and chief storyteller of Menlo Innovations. On a previous episode, we discussed Joy Inc. Today, we get to hear why he is considered the chief joy officer. And dear listeners, you'll hear me mess up the very first question because the Chief Joy Officer is next episode and we haven't talked to you about it yet. Thanks for joining Drew and Sam Talk Training in today's fabulous episode. We're joined by Richard Sheridan. Richard, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be with you both. For our listeners, could you give us a brief history of, of well, who you are in the event that they haven't listened to the podcast when we've talked about your two books? It's okay. Maybe, maybe they still don't know who you are. Well, uh, I'm a pure Michigan kid. I grew up in Macomb County, just north of Detroit. Touched a computer for the first time in 1971. Uh, Way back then, computers were a little different. Fell in love with the idea of writing software. Launched a career that, um, quite frankly, looked perfectly successful from the outside. But on the inside, uh, I was dying. (laughs) I didn't want to be in the software industry. By the time I was in my mid-30s, I was contemplating getting out entirely thinking about maybe taking my wife and my three daughters up to the boundary waters of Minnesota and starting a canoe camp. Uh, That's how far away from technology I wanted to get. That seemed impractical for a number of reasons, not the least of which is they wouldn't have followed me there. Uh, So so I realized I was stuck in a career that I thought would kill me before I could retire. And so I thought, okay, you got to dig your way out. There's a there's you're in a room full of manure rich. There's got to be a pony in this room somewhere. And that became my life journey from about my mid thirties to today. Um, and, and, Oh, there's that wife right there. She just walked by. So that's my <laughs> wife. She works here at Menlo. Nice. You can ask her about the canoe camp later, but, uh, cause she still laughs at me whenever I say that and, and looks at me funny, like, really, you're still telling that story, rich journey out, uh, led me to authors and books, but not books on technology. All of my object of fascination from mid-30s forward was about organizational design and teamwork and collaboration and building great cultures. And so I was really fascinated with many of the books that were coming out on those subjects. For a lot of that, it was um, they told you about companies that had achieved some remarkable culture, but they didn't tell you how to get there. And so that was you know, left as an exercise to the reader. And so uh, they kept me hopeful that there was, in fact, a better way of doing things than was customary. I was determined to find that there's a patient persistence inside of me that once I believe something's true, I'm going to pursue it till I make it true. 
And uh, between 1999 and 2001, I was a VP of R&D of a company on the west side of Ann Arbor called Interface Systems. And I made dramatic changes there that, quite frankly, by the time we got done there, we had created inside of that tired old public company something that looks just like Menlo Innovations does today. And I don't know, I might still be there at the internet bubble that burst. And we'd been bought by a California company that loved the culture I had created there and intended on growing it like crazy. But then, of course, the entire equation changed when the NASDAQ crashed. And so then I went from high-flying public company to unemployed. And, uh, and my eternal optimist kicked in again. And I told my wife that I was going to choose entrepreneurship over unemployment. And that became uh, the launch point of Menlo Innovations. Uh, and um, just give you the ounce of uh, backdrop on that. We're a custom software design and development firm. We have this crazy mission, too big for us alone, uh, to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. And the, the word that we center everything in our culture around is the subject of those books you're referring to, the word joy. So in that story that you just told us, you told us that at one point you were thinking about getting out of software altogether because the business was driving you crazy. And now as we sit here talking to you, you are the CEO of a very successful software company. So my guess is somewhere along that, that, that journey that the industry didn't change, but what you did was you changed the culture around the way you were using that industry to be successful and end all this human suffering software. And if there's one thing our listeners can absolutely connect with you on, it's the suffering with human software. Our, our store managers go through some serious suffering on a daily basis. So, uh, so tell us more about how the culture changed your idea of what you found your first love back there in 1971 and, and how it made you stick with it. Yeah. So the, I will describe briefly the, what I call my trough of disillusionment days. Like what was happening in those days? And it was kind of threefold. One was we were operating in chaos all the time. So there were all kinds of negative events happening, which translate to firefighting mode. You know, imagine your store managers come in and their software's down or it isn't working or it isn't working the way it's supposed to, or it lost some data or customers can't get to the store or, you know, the store locator system is pointing them to the store down the street rather than their store. And suddenly they don't know why nobody's ordering pizzas overnight. And, um, you know, and so then there's, then there is the, the firefighting nature of software, which is, Hey, the phone's ringing off with the, off the hook with problems. The people on the phone are screaming in our ears, pounding their fists on tables saying, you got to get this fixed. My business depends on it. And so you ended up, you know, in this chaotic environment of firefighting all the time and you could never catch up. You were always falling further and further and further behind. And so then, of course, bad things happen. So the people who were doing the work, either me or the people I was leading as I moved up the management chain, they were burned out. They were working tons of overtime. Nothing about it was satisfying because you never got a chance to work with pride. And that was that was the trophic disillusionment period. The journey out said, got to reorganize the humans. Is it possible to create a system of thinking and a process and culture that could produce high quality results all the time? And that's what we've done here at Menlo. The kind of joy we're trying to produce here at Menlo is twofold. 
We want to delight the people we intend to serve so much that they love what we've created. And then they tell their friends, I love this software. Nobody ever says that about software, right? But the story is what culture produced that software. And that's, we get three to 4,000 people a year travel from all over the world just to see how we do what we do because it's so different. So along those lines, in the books, you mentioned the Menlo Way. Can you give our listeners a, a brief glimpse into what the Menlo Way is? Absolutely. And the Menlo Way is a collection of practices that fit into this idea of creating an intentionally joyful culture. So give you some examples. The weird things that people see here that kind of mind blowing, right? They see two programmers working at one computer, sharing a keyboard and a mouse, working shoulder to shoulder, side by side all day long, working on the same task at the same time. Now, a lot of people are like, what would you find like all the introverted programmers on planet earth and put them in one you know, room together? No, these are all just regular people, but they're collaborating with one another. One of the biggest problems I had in my old life was this tower of knowledge problem where there was one person on the team that knew everything and nobody else knew what they knew. And you couldn't get help to that tower because they'd have to slow down enough. And because they were this you know, incredibly valuable tower of knowledge. They were always working overtime. They couldn't take vacation. When they did take vacations, they had to take a laptop with them. I mean, that's no way to live a life, right? Well, here, because we're pairing, there are two people who know something. So you're not building it into a single human being. And then we do this other weird thing that people find fascinating. We switch the pairs at least every five days. So now, you know, say, Drew, you and I were paired together for five days. And then the next week, it's Sam and I. And then the next week, it's you and Sam. And so we're just doing this sort of square dance. And what's happening is we're sharing our knowledge, our wisdom, our ideas with one another. We're creating better solutions to problems. And we're making sure that no one of us has all of this tower of knowledge trapped in our own head because we're sharing that knowledge with each other, which means if I go to take a vacation, you guys can backfill for me and I don't have to check email while I'm away. So that's an aspect of our culture that builds it. The other one we should talk about at some point in the conversation is this interesting component of Menlo that we call high-tech anthropology. We've definitely got that in our notes. I love that piece. And during the tour, which was just amazing, by the way, thank you so much for that. Uh, that was really interesting. But let's jump back to this pairing for just a second, because I would think that to people that haven't seen it work or don't know much about Menlo, they would think, well, it seems like every time you change the pairs that there's all this catching up to do. So tell us more about the stand-up that happens every week. And also for a little fun, because a lot of our Domino's folks like to consider themselves to be Vikings. Tell us about the, the piece that you use during stand-up, kind of like a talking stick, I guess, for lack of a better term. Yes. So every day at 10 o'clock, there's a dartboard on the wall here that has an alarm in it. And the alarm goes off at 10. And that is our call to daily stand up. Bong, bong, bong. And everybody gets up, gathers in a circle. They grab the two horned plastic Viking helmet, which is uh, the iconic symbol of Menlo now. And, um, uh, but that is our talking stick. And the reason we like the two horned plastic Viking helmet is we work in pairs and we report out a stand up in pairs. So each of the pair partners, as they're reporting out, is holding one of the two horns. And then as they complete what they're working on, any general announcements they want to make, they pass the horns on to the next people and it goes around the circle. And when it arrives where it started, the stand-up is done. Typically takes about 13 minutes. 
They have a daily stand-up meeting with about 60 people and everybody gets a chance to talk. That's fantastic. I love it. Now, related to the switching thing, because I think that's where you were headed with this, what everybody's hearing is just a little snippet of what's going on in all the other projects, because I might find myself on one of those projects next week, or I might have been on that project last week, and I might have something to contribute. If somebody says, and we're having a problem with this, I may raise my hand and say, I could help with that because I was on that project last week. See me after stand-up. That's awesome. Everything I've read and seen in, <clears throat> in the tour, communication is huge at Menlo. And even though you're a software company, it seems like you've chosen a very non-technical way to communicate within the building there. And it's uh, high-speed voice technology. Tell us about that. This is very technical. Uh, you know, if you think about it, uh, it requires stimulation of the tympanic membranes in your ears, auditory nerve stimulation of the brain. It's supplemented by body language and eyebrows and tonal inflection. Very high fidelity, right? Imagine how much more you get out of what we call high-speed voice technology. You know, just talking to one another, calling out and saying, hey, Sam, hey, Drew. And you guys don't even have to move. And we have a conversation maybe across the room or maybe I walk over if I've got your attention. Think about how high fidelity that communication is. How many times a day do any of us misinterpret an email because we didn't know where the tone, the inflection, we didn't know if the person was joking or being serious. You usually can tell that just by body language, by tonal inflection, by eyebrows. That's awesome. Along the lines of, of that with the tonal inflection and the eyebrows, your, your books are centered around finding joy. So for you, what's the difference between joy and happiness? Why aren't you the chief happiness officer instead of the chief joy officer? You know, and I actually know the chief happiness officer. He's in Denmark. His name is Alexander Troll, and he's the chief happiness officer of Denmark, which apparently is the happiest country on the planet. So if you want to get him on the show sometime, I'd be happy to introduce you. And we could have, you could even have us both on and we'll talk about why joy and happiness are both important. But my belief is happiness is hard to sustain like for a long time. Right? It would be hard to be happy every minute of every day, especially when you're doing hard work for important clients on difficult projects. Joy for me is a much longer arc. Joy is like, you know, when you raise your child and, you know, you're, they're marrying the man of their dreams, you know, like my daughter did. And then that simple I do, you're feeling as a parent, those, all those years of parenting and uh, in a moment. And there is joy in that, that long arc of joy that this is a life well lived. You did a good job as a parent. Was it pleasant every moment of every day? Were you happy every moment of every day? Of course not. That would be impossible. So for me, happiness is important too. We have a lot of fun here at Menlo. There's a lot of laughter here at Menlo. We're also very serious. And, you know, the work we do often holds the lives of people in its hands. So our arc of joy is in this idea of delighting the people we intend to serve. Because when we hear back from potential, from users of the software we've created, that they love what we created, that's that same feeling of, wow, it was worth all the effort. It was worth all the struggle. It was worth all the attention to detail because now we've created something somebody absolutely loves. And that's just that feeling of, I got a chance to work with pride. It seems like that at Menlo, it's a very inclusive environment that everybody's a part of everything. 
Can you tell our listeners about your um, very exquisite CEO chamber that you have, your, your office? Yes. Uh, so you can see behind me that there's this big open room and I sit out in the room with everybody else. You know, I, I can't have a closed door policy or an open door policy because I don't have a door. I sit at the same five foot table that everybody else here does. And, um, and so does my co-founder. So we're out in the room. There's no gifted C-suite. I'm in a closed door conference room right now just because it would be harder to hear me with the background noise of Menlo. But yeah, I'm out in the room with everybody else. So if people want to approach me, they're just, guess what? They say, hey, Rich. Nice. They utilize that high-speed voice technology. I like it. Exactly. I saw in one of the videos, um, there were a couple of signs around the office that I thought were just amazing um, because I think it really promotes a culture where people can feel like they have a voice and they're not worried about backlash from from bad things. So um, one of them was, it's okay to say, I don't know. And the other one was make mistakes faster. Tell us about those two things and why they're hanging in your office. One of the things I wanted to do in that pursuit out when I was reading authors and books, uh, one of the books that just really intrigued me was Peter Senge's book, The Fifth Discipline on the Art and Practice of Building a Learning Organization. And I knew I needed that. I knew I wanted that. And I wanted to build learning into our organization on a moment by moment basis. You know, for me, and, you know, I know your broad subject is around training. Training, formal training is great. It's important. But too often we stop working, go learn in a training class, and then go back to work. And we seldom get a chance to apply that training soon enough that the learning sinks in it takes. So I wanted an organization where we could be having a chance to grow an inch every day because we're learning every day. And so to create a culture where, for example, it's okay to say, I don't know, is really an invitation to learn something, right? Because now if you know we're talking about something and they say, hey, Rich, what do you know about this? And I say, well, I don't know anything about that. All of a sudden, it opens me up somewhat vulnerable to say, would you like to learn something about it? Should we go study it together? Should we find a book about it? Rather than pretend I have knowledge that I don't have or feign just enough to get away with it, our, our mode here is no. If you don't know it, just say you don't know it. Let's not pretend we know something we don't. And that's the invitation to learn. And then the make mistakes faster couples really well with another part of our learning organization, which is let's run the experiment. So this idea of what I would say, take action over take a meeting kind of culture here, which says if somebody has a new idea too often in the organizations I was a part of and others I run into now that I you know, speak around the world about these topics, they say, you know, if somebody brings a new idea and the typical response is, well, that won't work here. That's against policy. If we're going to make that change, we should form a committee to write a new policy, right? And of course, in that moment, the idea just dies, doesn't it? Because everybody's too busy for that. That's the basically the death knell of new ideas. Here, our view is if somebody says, hey, I've got this new idea, the most typical response is, great, let's run the experiment. Let's try it. Let's see if it works. And if it doesn't, no big deal. Make mistakes faster. Let's try stuff, see if it works. If it doesn't work, we'll make a few improvements or we'll change it in one direction or another. But we take a very simple approach. And, you know, just to give you an example of this, which is not necessarily about learning per, per se, uh, somebody once 
read an article that said sitting is the new smoking. Well, this is largely a team that sits all day, right? So they were thinking about health concerns and they said, you should have standing desks. Well, I don't know, you know, that struck fear in my heart because you know how expensive those things are? And what if people don't like them? Well, our team did what we call the simplest thing that can possibly work. They said, we want to try stand-up desks. So they took a chair, they put it up on top of a table, they put a board on top of the chair, they put the keyboard and the monitor on the chair. And within five minutes at zero cost, we had a stand-up desk. And I don't know if you can tell, but we got a big concrete floor here. There's a reason for that. We allow dogs in the office and it's much better for the humans if the dogs uh, have an accident to clean up concrete um, rather than carpet. And so uh, the problem is that the team found right away stand-up desk, standing all day on concrete, bottom of your feet and your knees get sore. So then the least expensive thing we could do is buy those little rubberized mats they have like at the checkout for the clerks at uh, Home Depot or something. And so all of a sudden, some of these mats started showing up. And then people said, hey, let's find these cheap little Veradesk things. And, you know, they're only for it out. And so this idea of just iterating inexpensively, running experiments, and we ended up getting about four Veradesks, and that seems to be plenty. The whole team didn't want to make a standard desk. I will tell you, if we'd gone the big route, form the committee, write the policy, do the purchasing program, do the 14 different evaluations, we would have spent $100,000 on standard desks, and only four of them are being used. And like, oh, that was bad. So we just tried little things, see if we can make progress. There was a time for me about six years ago where if I was doing 45 hours a week uh, at the building, I was probably in meetings and committees for 30 of those hours. So I completely understand where you're coming from. So along those lines, I want to know when you do run the experiment, what's the experiment that's popped out that gave you the most surprising outcome? Like you were expecting A and it generated four. <laughs> like what's, what's the thing? You know, I will say one of our most famous experiments happened 14 years ago when Tracy had little Maggie. And she was off on maternity leave. She was ready to come back to work after that maternity leave. We had a brand new, exciting project starting that she wanted to be a part of. And the trouble was the daycare they planned to put little Maggie in was full. Grandparents lived too far away to help. And she came to James and I. She said, I don't know what to do. We don't have an option. And I will tell you, you know, this was an experiment I started. But it began with a screaming match in my brain. A bright voice, dark voice, screaming match. The, the dark voice said, don't you dare say what you're about to say. HR will shoot you. you know, the <laughs> and a bright voice said, it's your company. You don't even have an HR department. And um, and so I looked at Tracy. I said, bring her in. She's like, what do you mean? I said, bring her in to work. She said, all day. I said, why not? She said, every day. I said, sure. And she looked around the big open room. She says, where will I put her? Because this was not an offer to build a daycare. We weren't doing that. The baby was going to be with the parent all day. That was 27 Menlo babies ago. Babies come in all day, every day, moms and or dads, usually around six weeks to three months old till, you know, they start and then they stay till they're about six months old. When they start getting mobile, this is not a good place for mobile babies. And, it, it, and I would have never guessed how well that would have worked. You know, there were so many things that even I could think of that wouldn't have worked. Or would have been really difficult and they all worked beautifully that's awesome best part of that experiment is it's so easy in that case to go to that dark side right it's 
because it's what everybody else does. It's just so easy to say, uh, figure it out. <laughs> well, Tracy did. I mean, the mom did. She said, what if she makes a fuss? I said, here, it's like a noisy restaurant. I never hear. She said, come on, you've raised three girls. She'll make that big baby fuss and everybody will hate me. Right. I mean, she didn't want to be vilified as the mom of the of that baby. Right. And I said, Tracy, you're the mom. I trust you to do the right thing. We'll work it out together because I knew the moms in particular and the dads do it, too. I mean, they bring the babies in, too. We've had a lot of Menlo dads here bring their babies in, work with them. And we've had one mom that brought all three of her kids in as, you know, over a period of years. The delightful thing is the connection you make both the kids and the parents at that point. Yeah, it sounds like you're um, just simply recruiting at a very young age. Somebody asked me once, where, where do you guys find people? I said, we're running a really slow but complex cloning experiment of Melbonians, <laughs> right? So we're four years away from Maggie being eligible to work for us. So. <laughs> That's nice. That is fantastic. So speaking of experiments, I, um, I was looking on your website today, and it looks like you're in the middle of an experiment, uh, Project Littleton. Tell us about that and how's, how's it going? I don't know that one. Uh-oh. Did I stump you? I just say it. I'll try and make something up. <laughs> so this is, uh, it said in the, in the Menlo bits, it was talking about people coming back to the office and some were more oh. excited and some yes. were less excited. Okay. Yes. Thank you. I, you know, I think I came up with that name actually is. <laughs> That's uh, awesome. We, we we come up with these clever names for projects, and there's so many of them. Sometimes I forget, but I believe uh, Littleton came out of the uh, Swiss Family Robinson uh, story. We are on a three phase plan to bring people back in, and um, the first phase, which we've been in for a while now, is and there's you're going to hear a lot of flexibility in this because i think this is really important for individuals to have flexibility around this so the first phase is some people are coming in some days which says whoever's deciding to come in their decision and that whatever days they want to come in their decision around about april 4th assuming no changes to the pandemic and if it changes we'll adjust just like everybody else does around about april 4th we're going to shift this to a slightly higher expectation that says most people are going to come in some days and again totally uh, decision on each side but but we're going to communicate an expectation that says if there isn't anything specifically preventing you from coming in other than I got really used to just rolling out of bed in my slippers and pajamas and go to my computer and work, then we want you to come in. We want to start, and it might be just two or three days a week, which is a-okay, but we want to start getting people into the mode of like, oh, experimenting to try and get in. How does it feel? We've had 19 people join us since March of last year, so a year ago, and most of them have never been in the office or just infrequently so this is going to be a new experience they're going to have to figure out like where do i drive where do i park how long does it take all that kind of stuff right and so then we told them at some point again assuming no changes pandemic early summer we'll go to most people are in most days and again we're going to leave it very flexible up to the people but the kind of expectation is at least three days a week you're in the office you get to decide which ones and there will be tremendous flexibility in this because you know, the people who figured out, oh, you mean I don't have to take a PTO day to wait for the cable guy? I can actually work from home. You know, all those things are going to be built into the system going forward. How has the remote work 
Let me see. How do I want to word this? How has the remote work changed the culture of Menlo? Because it seems to me that it's a very inclusive, very close knit, a lot of use of high speed voice technology. And, you know, as good as our technology is and as easy it is to connect with people in our jammies and our slippers, it's just not the same. So how has that affected your productivity or or your general culture so far? First and foremost, and I think this is really important to note that while we embraced the physical distancing that was going to keep us safe, we completely rejected the notion that it had to be social distancing, right? We don't have to be apart socially in order to be apart physically. Now, is it the same? Is it ideal? Of course not. You know, the ability to connect with others on the team. So in our one-on-ones, in our pairs, pretty easy to do, just like we're kind of tripled up here in this discussion. It's not that hard to imagine. You know, I'll get a video link. We'll have a second monitor with the code we're co-developing. We can talk to each other all day long. That works well. The part that we lost in our culture is just not ever going to be quite as good part as it is when we're together are those serendipitous moments of overhearing others. Now, there are people who will gather together in fours or sixes and and have the volume turned up enough, but the technology isn't quite there to make that so convenient. It's amazing how good the human mind is at filtering stuff, especially when you're in the noisy room. I mean, I, I don't know if maybe if I open up my glass doors here, you might actually be able to just hear a little bit of the energy of Menlo. We've actually heard laughter almost, I wouldn't say through the entire, but what, Sam, more than half the time there's been laughter just coming through. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, to your point earlier about body language, I can just see the people behind you. They are not, they're not at work. They're at a place that they enjoy being at and they just happen to be getting paid while they're doing it. I would imagine that your turnover rate is extremely low compared to the rest of the industry. I had a a pretty good friend, our kids played soccer together and he was in the tech department at Domino's and he had been there about I guess, four years when we were having this discussion. And he said, you know, I'm already about two years past my normal shelf life at a given tech job. Yeah, I think that's true. We, and I mean, a, what you just described, I believe, is industry-wide true, true that uh, the average uh, sort of tenure of programmer job is a couple of years. And you can imagine with all the stuff I described earlier, that still exists in this tech industry, right? There's a lot of overtime. There's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of irrational deadlines for things where people just have to work towards this pace that doesn't even make sense for what they're trying to accomplish or the quality they're trying to do it with. And of course, here, we don't have that. We have 40-hour work. We don't work weekends. Uh, When you go on vacation, we literally, uh, through peer pressure alone, cut you off electronically uh, from the company and you get to enjoy your vacation without checking email while you're away. So yeah, I mean, we have people that have joined us out of college and they've been here 18 years. Now, do we lose people? Of course we do. I don't think any intentional culture will ever work for everyone. And so there are some who come, they learn a lot, they move on. Now we also have this effect uh, that we call boomerangs, where people leave and come back. Because you can imagine if you work in an environment like this, and you've never seen a software emergency, uh, you don't work crazy hours, crazy overtime, you might actually begin to believe, oh, <laughs> I heard all the richest stories, but I'm sure it isn't like that out there in the real world. You know, I'm sure it's not like Rich is describing. I mean, that may have been true 20 years ago, but it's not true today. And then they go out in the real world and then they come back to me and they're like, please don't ever let me leave again. <laughs> I'm dad. Can I come home? 
that's just it. The, the next time I say I want to leave, I need you to just whack me on the head. Or just tell me the story of why I came back the, the, the second time, you know. Um, you know, in, in fact, mirrors, I mean, we're not the right place. I mean, we're different and we're not the right place for everybody. And we give everybody a chance to try it out. So we've mentioned a couple of times about these tours that you do. I guess I've got a couple of questions. One is, when did they start? Two would be, why did they start? And three is, what in the world's in it for you to, to open your doors to the public and, and be what I, for, what I see as being just completely transparent and letting anybody know exactly what you're doing. So, so when, why, and, and what's in it for you? Yeah, uh, great questions. So intriguingly, the tours actually started two years before Menlo's founding. So back at Interface Systems, when I created the prototype for this, uh, Interfaces, one of Interface's big customers was IBM. And I'm the VP of R&D of a public company and our big customer, IBM, comes in to visit. And you might imagine we're going to have this really like, you know, kind of breaking your tie up meeting and your shiny shoes and your blue suit and your white shirt. And you're trying to match the IBM guys who are coming in. And in the middle of this, I'd, I'd already created what we called the Java factory interface systems, which was literally back in a factory space. Right. And our VP of sales says to the IBM guys, they didn't even warn me. He says, uh, Ed, would you, would you like to see our development process? And I'm sitting there thinking, you want me to take the suits back to crazy land? Okay. Okay, Keith, it's your customer. So we walked back through the little quiet and dimly lit corridors of interface systems and past the beautiful offices with oak doors that looked out in a pastoral scene. And I opened this fire door into the Java factory interface systems. It was literally like a moment of going in, in Wizard of Oz when you go from black and white to color and there's Nerf darts for the place. There's two people working on one computer. It's all these visual artifacts. And so I give the IBM guy a tour. And at that point, when we went back to the conference room, Ed Harbor was his name. He looked at me and he says, Rich, I got to tell you what I just saw there. Absolutely amazing. We could never do at IBM what you've done here. Congratulations. Well, at that point, I got a new role at Interface Systems. I was the tour guide for every customer that came through. Microsoft, CompuWare, Bell & Howell, Pfizer, all these customers were coming through and they're getting tours. And by the way, I, I'm my card says chief storyteller. I started adding stories in and that sort of thing. And I got pretty good at it. Well, when we started Menlo, people heard about us and they had seen interface systems. They're like, could we come and take a tour of the new Menlo? You know, the new thing? You know, can we come see it? And we're like, sure. Well, people just started coming. At a certain point, we just said, we've got to start offering this. I mean, people come in and, and part of this, you know, the why, there's two whys. There's a very practical business why. And then there's the more sort of purpose related why. So I'll start there first and then we'll go to the business why. The purpose why is, when we say we want to end human suffering in the world as really as technology, that's way bigger than us. We have a mighty, a small but mighty team. We can't do that for everybody. So what if we share with the world what we've learned in the hopes that they can help us on our mission, right? We'll teach them how to do it. Not that we found the one tree way of working. That's not what we believe. But sometimes when people read about culture, 
or they read a business book about organizational design, there's part of their brain that says, you know what? Could I see an example just once? Could I just go visit one? Well, yes, you can. You can come here. There's other places you can go. Industrial tourism is kind of a thing. So people come here and they want to learn from us. And we teach them anything they want to know. As you've said, we are incredibly transparent. We don't keep anything. We do a trade secret. Now, there's the business part. It's a great place to start the recruiting process for talent. Because people come in and they're like, I don't know if I want to work here or not. I'll just go on a tour. I won't, I'll just tell them I'm curious about Menlo. You know, I don't have to tell them I'm interested in a job here. So they can just come in, peek in, see if this is the kind of place they want to work. Often, and this is absolutely true, people send us their children. Because an adult, you know, some older adult comes in, they look at Menlo and they're like, you know, I, I liken it to this desperate scene on the deck of the Titanic. They, they, they see Menlo and they're like, it's too late for me, but please save my child's career, you know. And they hand us their kid. <laughs> and so we get a lot of referrals of parents who've come on tours like, my kid would love to work in a place like this. I want them to work in a place like this. And then, of course, there are potential customers. Or they don't even think of themselves as customers till afterwards. They say, well, wait a minute. I, I have all the problems you're describing with my company. I need what you have. And so all of these things all fold into the exact same tour. Because we're just sharing the truth about who we are, what we do, why we do it, the way we do it, what the results are. And that can be used for recruiting. That can be used just for people who are interested in making their own changes. Or that could be used by people who are actually looking to us to be a potential supplier to them. I'm amazed. Right away, I now have this image of people outside your door with their soon-to-be college or current or just recent college graduate like in a headlock, dragging them to your door, going, please take them. <laughs> I'm just stuck in that total visual now. One of my best stories was a guy named Rob, whose dad came here as a CEO of a tier one automotive supplier with like 400 million in revenue. I gave a personal tour for his dad. And he went home that night and he told his son, Rob, I found the place you want to work. And Rob came here, worked for us for about five years. One day on a tour, somebody said, oh, where do you find people? I said, oh, people send us their children. And they're like, what? <laughs> I said, well, hey, Rob, come here. Tell them your story, how you found out about it. He says, oh, my dad came on a tour. Then he came home. Said, Son, I found a place you want to work. You should go check these guys out. And of course, the rest of the history is working here. And then I asked Rob a question that I'd never asked him before that day. I said, Rob, did you have a job when your dad came home? He goes, oh, yeah. I said, where were you working? Oh, I was working for my dad's company. I can't make this up. CEO of a company goes home and tells his kid, you don't want to work for me anymore, son. You want to go work for this guy. And, and Rob was a great contributor. His dad knew that he would thrive here. That's amazing. I read or, or I heard it on the tour. I can't remember which, but you've got kind of a stay interview question that you use, I think, when you are uh, evaluating their folks to take them to the next level on your pay board, which is public, which I think is amazing. Everybody knows exactly what everybody else is making. Um, and they get, uh, they actually get evaluated by the peers. If I'm, if I'm correct. Yes, that is correct. The question that's very interesting to me is you ask folks, if you were going to leave us, which three team members would you take? Tell us where that question came from and why you find it so valuable, because, um, it's something that I'm going to start using with my clients to tell them to use, because I think the question is amazing. Yeah. So it actually occurred at a time where we were trying to document the values that were so apparent here, but we've never actually written them down. 
And so this was led by my co-founder, James. And what he did was he kind of met with team members one by one. And he said that question, he says, if you were ever considering leaving Menlo, say you were going to start your own business, go on the entrepreneurial journey, and you wanted others to join you, which three Menlonians would you choose to join you? But the most important part of that question, after they said who they would choose, he said, why did you choose them? What was it about them that intrigued you? And then he just listened to what they said about their peers and what they most valued about these three people. And as he started writing these down on index cards, it became clear there was this pattern of values about how we value each other. And so what was neat about that is I think a lot of values-based exercise companies says, we should come up with our core values. They kind of start with a whiteboard and maybe they throw a bunch of values that 14 other companies they admire have. And they come up with kind of a vacuous set of values that don't mean anything. To them. The difference here with this exercise is these were real. These were values we were already living out. We were just trying to live out the value. We were trying to write down the values we're already living out. And you know what came out of that was was kind of amazing. But it was it was a great exercise just to see what what, what is it that people value about each other. That's just amazing. And we're winding up uh, at the end of the hour here, and we want to be very cognizant of your time. And usually I ask everybody the same thing that Bacon asks his podcast guest, and that's who's your favorite teacher. But we've already got that on uh, on record on his podcast. So I'm going to spare you that one. And wait, wait, Sam, 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 friend of the show, John Bacon. Friend of the show. Okay, that's okay. right. <laughs> yeah, that, that's fantastic. So we're going to change it up a little bit. Drew came up with a much better ending question for us. And that is, what's your favorite pizza combination? Now, wait. Rich, I want to I want to just warn you. You tell us that you like to run experiments, so the bar for your favorite pizza is really high because you say you like to run experiments. So now that I've said that, what's your favorite pizza? <laughs> well, you know, I think for me, uh, the best pizza combination that you know when I'm ignoring what anybody else wants and it's just the pizza I want is going to include pineapple, ham, and bacon. <laughs> Oh, team pineapple. Nice. Wow. We can split a pizza. Yeah. Pineapple is very polarizing these days. It's, uh, it's huge. Now, one pizza I fell, absolutely fell in love with over time from Domino's in particular was uh, uh, the barbecue chicken. Personal favorite. Uh, yeah. yeah. Right. Where you're replacing the, the, the tomato sauce with barbecue sauce. I just thought that was delicious. Yeah, that's great stuff. Well, thank you so much for taking so much of your time out of your day. We really appreciate it. Some great stuff that I think our listeners are going to be able to re- relate to really, really well. Can't thank you enough for your time today. Thank you both. This has been a delightful conversation. A lot of I'm laughter. Glad. Yep. <laughs> laughter indeed. Well, Rich, thank you. thank you so much. We appreciate it. Take care. Well, Drew, I don't know about you, but uh, you know, I, I lined this interview up because I had actually gone to one of the Menlo Innovations uh, tours and we read the book and both thought it was pretty interesting. But I was a little worried that, you know, I was talking to a, a, um, a software guy might not resonate very well with our listeners. But man, after hearing that interview, I think there's a lot of good stuff in there that will absolutely resonate well with the listeners. What do you think? That's just it. Sam, you and I've talked about this sometimes, right? It's, it's not a matter of what you make. It's, it's the culture and, and whether it's, it's a large ham, bacon, and pineapple pizza or a piece of software, 
it's the culture of the team that that allows that item to be created and rich is amazing at explaining what the culture is and for software to be that much fun imagine how much fun you could have playing with other people's food yeah no kidding and for me i think that this way and and the thing that should resonate the most with our listeners is he talked about this thing that he found in the seventh grade that he just really loved to do and after being in the software industry he wanted to completely give it up but what it turned out was it wasn't software that he didn't like it was the atmosphere around him that he didn't like and i'm just wondering how many pizza makers we've got in restaurants right now that really enjoy making pizzas and really enjoy taking care of customers but because they're in a bad place right now either because of staffing or or maybe leadership that they're thinking about going somewhere else and you know, when you're the leader of a restaurant, you control those four walls, you control the staff that works for you. And if you truly become the chief joy officer of your restaurant, I think you can continue to do the things that you think you really love to do. And then also make it an environment where people absolutely want to be. So for me, that was a big takeaway. And Sam, I'm, I'm right there with you. It's amazing. As you said that I had this epiphany moment of that air quotes job hopper right? Where, where we see them go from competitor to competitor, to competitor, to competitor. And to your point, they like the environment. They like the thing they do, and they probably haven't found the team to fit what they like doing, which is why they keep hopping. They're not going to Arby's and Taco Bell and McDonald's. They're going Marco's to Jets, to Pizza Hut, to Papa John's, to Domino's, and then starting over again at different locations. And so, so to your point, they're, they're, they like what they do and they're just looking for that team. And, and please listeners take this opportunity to step back, look at your team and go, am I the chief joy officer or am I the, the, um, oh my gosh, Sam, it's gone. Uh, Dave Brandon's the, uh, fellowship of the miserable. Yeah. Right. That's, that's the two ships you can be on. Which one do you choose? Yeah. Let's, let's stop looking for great teams and let's start creating great teams at the number one pizza company in the world. It's not going to get any better than you've got it at Domino's Pizza. Uh, You're on the winning team as far as a brand goes. Let's make sure that you start creating that winning team inside your four walls. Hey, uh, this episode's turned into a little bit longer than uh, our new trimmed down episode, but let's go ahead and land this jumbo jet. Thanks for listening. We'd love it if you'd share these episodes with your friends, like them, follow us, and subscribe. This has been episode 31 of Drew and Sam Talk Training. I'm Drew with Better Than Yesterday Consulting. And I'm Sam with Bowser Consulting. As always, gang, go out and sell more pizza. And have more fun. That's all, folks.